With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, the breakout sessions are announced for the National Farmers Union Anniversary Convention, and federal funding is helping support more in depth pistachio research. But to start our show today in today's Almond Matters, brought to you by Valent USA. Disease management will be an important consideration with almond bloom this year. Here's Brian German. In this week's Almond Matters segment, we're joined once again by Field Market Development Specialist with Valent USA, Todd Berkdahl. And now California's gotten quite a bit of rainfall in the last week, but looks like there's going to be a bit of a break in the weather this week before potentially some more storm systems coming in. And so, uh, Todd, what's this sort of weather pattern mean for growers with these uh, rainstorms and now bloom on the horizon because uh, some areas received some pretty significant rain last week? Yeah, well, I saw on the coast where they've had up to over almost 10 inches of rain, you know, right Grandy, Santa Maria in that area, and even the Paso, into Paso. But uh, we got a couple inches here, and, uh, you know, ground's pretty wet still, but uh, it's probably going to be feasible to get in, uh, I say Wednesday, Thursday this week, you know, most most places, depending on soil type. So we're heading we're heading into bloom. As the weather warms up, the bloom's, it's, you know, the bloom's going to start popping. Again, I don't know how much, I don't think we got enough chilling, you know, for like certain varieties especially pistachios, but for almonds, looks like it's it's gonna it's gonna come on this week uh, for all the earlier varieties and by next week the value will look white, you know, with all the acres. Uh, so you got bloom coming up, you potential for rain coming up uh, past this week, this weekend, I think is Saturday, Saturday, Sunday is supposed to be more rain, maybe in the next week, Monday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So you've got open blooms out there and potential for uh, infection monolinea or uh, blossom blight is gonna you know pop its head up especially especially with the weather the way it is I think so I think it would be advantageous for people to put on an ounce of prevention to reduce the amount of uh, cure that you're gonna have to go on if you put it on after after the rain it's always better to get on preventatively especially with fungicides uh, and disease uh, get it before it gets out of hand if it gets full-blown infection, you know, then it's just, it's like putting, trying to put a forest fire out with a garden hose. It just doesn't really work really well. And most of these fungicides, they're not, they don't have a lot of reach back under a full-blown infection. So conditions will be probably pretty good for uh, monolinea. Also, um, the shot hole as they leap out, you know, the spores will be there. Potential for... Um, scab if there's a history of scab out there. There's a bunch of several pathogens, but monolinea blossom blight, you know, it can knock off all the flowers, you know, anything to spread. So uh, guys called me yesterday and wanted to use retain, you know, to keep the bloom vibrant longer and improve fruit scent and asked me if he could use uh, fungicides with that application. And that, that is a viable option is to use fungicides. If you're going to use retain, you can use uh, fungicides with it. Uh, with the exception of farm tellus, but everything else is, is fine. So, you know, with with the weather coming up, uh, you're going to have probably three or four days of maybe intermittent uh, weather that's not conducive to good pollination. These won't be flying, you know, below 50, 55 degrees. Pollen tubes don't grow. So it might be a good option to put on retain this year to alleviate some of this, uh, this potential effects of weather. And you can't put on a fungicide with that. Uh, the other thing is, 
uh, guys are still doing, there's a few people still doing sanitation out there. Not a lot, but um, Naval Orange Worm is, is, is there. You also got Pete's Tweak Bore coming up in the near future. So applications for that as well. Probably a couple weeks away from that. Usually that's after petal fall. You don't want to put any insecticides on during bloom just because of potential for bee kill. It's just not good stewardship. It's don't even go there. So I think the name of the game is going to be fungicides for the next 10 days here or so. Bloom is a critical period. You know, what you what you set at this time of year is going to be your crop come August, September, shake time. So uh, getting a good fruit set is really key, and you don't want to have disease affect that. And now with Retain being an option out there for growers, as, uh, as far as making applications go, uh, are those forecasted rains going to be an issue for that? Well, again, I mean, to go out there with just Retain uh, for the bloom, I, I would say because of the weather, you'd want a tank mix with a fungicide, you know, or, or tank mix Retain with a fungicide. Um, the disease portion is probably uh, the bigger animal at this point, but keeping those flowers vibrant longer uh, is also really going to be, uh, I don't, you know, I don't know if anybody could predict the weather, we, you know, we, we wouldn't be here. So I, I don't know what it's going to do, but if it stays uh, wet and cold, wet and cool, uh, you know, not conducive to good pollination or, or, or fruit sets. So having retain on there gives you a buffer, basically a buffer against that. So the, the flowers remain viable longer. Basically, retain basically blocks ethylene production. And when you start bloom, you know, you're going to have uh, early flowers, late flowers, the, the flower natural, uh, the, the tree plant usually naturally produces ethylene through a physiological pathway and basically retain stifles that pathway. It shuts off that pathway, gives you about three to four days of maybe five days, depending on this colder weather, probably five days of, of uh, effect that um, basically shuts off that pathway, uh, keeping the flowers from senescing, keeping them viable longer. So with that flower viability comes the potential for an increased fruit set as, as the bees come back out and start doing their thing. Thank you, Brian. You're listening to the AgNet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's national spotlight, the U.S. Department of Agriculture this week announced a new effort to train the next generation of conservation and climate leaders. It's called the Working Lands Climate Corps. Deputy Secretary of Agriculture Social Torres Small made the announcement at the National Association of Conservation Districts annual meeting in San Diego. Will McEntee, Senior Advisor for Public Engagement at the White House, explains. This program is uh, part of the American Climate Corps that uh, President announced back in uh, September of last year uh, that, that's uh, putting a new generation of Americans to work conserving our lands and waters, bolstering community resilience, deploying clean energy and, 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 and tackling climate change. And uh, you know, what Deputy Secretary Torres Small announced today is the, the Working Lands Climate Corps, which will provide technical training and career pathway opportunities for young people, helping them deliver economic benefits through climate smart ag solutions for farmers and ranchers across the country, both now and in the future. And its first cohort will aim to, to create service opportunities for more than 100 young people. So we're really excited uh, to build off of the, uh, the, the interest from the American Climate Corps and uh, to, to work uh, with, with, with young people uh, through this, this new program uh, on, on our, our working lands and, and, and with, uh, in partnership with our farmers and ranchers. 
According to the White House, to date, more than 50,000 people have expressed interest in joining the American Climate Corps, and over the past several weeks, 2,200 people have participated in American Climate Corps listening sessions. This is uh, you know, one of, of many uh, programs within the American Climate Corps initiative. So um, there are you know, many ways uh, for folks to, to get involved. And uh, you, you can visit whitehouse.gov slash climate corps uh, to, to learn more and to, uh, to submit your interest in uh, participating in the, in the American Climate Corps. Uh, but this is a, a, a new program, you know, partnership with the CORE Network, uh, the National Association of Conservation Districts, AmeriCorps, and, and USDA uh, to, to you know, start this new uh, uh, program, uh, the, the Working Lands uh, Climate Corps, and, uh, and, and starting with um, you know, providing those uh, new opportunities for, for more than 100 young people uh, as, as a start. USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service is working in partnership with AmeriCorps, the Corps Network, and the National Association of Conservation Districts in this effort. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with this Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, with less than a month to go until the federal budget approval deadline, appropriations are still hot discussion, especially in agriculture. To learn more, I visited with Tanner Beamer, Senior Director of Government Affairs from National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Keeping the federal agencies funded is critical, right? Because if we have a government shutdown, uh, producers out across the country are going to notice some things immediately. We're not going to have any of this livestock mandatory reporting information, uh, which is very critical from a market transparency perspective. We're also not going to to have access to uh, NRCS or any of the FSA programs or farm loans, uh, those offices will be closed for the duration of a government shutdown. So just on the surface and by itself, it is important that we pass an appropriations bill and keep the government funded. In addition to that, the appropriations bills, because they are must-pass pieces of legislation, it creates an opportunity for us to advance our members' policy priorities through that process, uh, and we've got some uh, riders in the House version of the bill to prohibit USDA from implementing their very harmful packers and stockyards rules. We've got some money earmarked for APHIS to purchase uh, electronic identification tags uh, to uh, offset the cost for producers to comply with uh, the traceability rule that we are expecting to come out of USDA. Um, and, of course, that will be discussed at length uh, during this convention. Uh, but regardless, that rule's over there, and our position is, you know, whether we support the rule or we don't, if the rule comes out, USDA should be the ones to pay for those tags, not cattle producers. Uh, so we've got a lot of priorities tied up in this particular uh, appropriations package, and uh, hopefully Congress will decide that they want to permanently do something instead of just kick the can down the road, and we'll get, be able to get some of this stuff done. Taking a look at the Farm Bill. The Farm Bill, of course, expired on September 30th of 2023. Now, USDA had some funds in reserve and some other means at their disposal to make sure that some of those programs weren't going to run dry and producers were going to be left out high and dry. Uh, but at the 11th hour, Congress extended the 2023 Farm Bill, which is, is helpful in terms of still continuing to provide those programs. But a dollar today doesn't buy what a dollar did back in 2018. We have got to take a more serious look at this Farm Bill to make sure that it is providing for the needs of American agriculture at a time when food security really, really is national security. And so from that perspective, it is imperative that they get something done on this. Now, appropriations being kicked down the, 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 down the road to the March 1st and March 8th deadlines, you know, that's, that's going to kind of create some problems because during a presidential election year around May, 
any interest in bipartisanship, even though there hasn't been an abundance of it this Congress, but any interest in it goes out the window so that Republicans and Democrats can go back to their respective corners and support their respective nominees for president. So uh, if we can be successful in clearing appropriations by March 8th, that creates a very narrow window to get the farm bill done, but that there's a lot of things that have to go right in order to accomplish that. Uh, And thus far, uh, it's been a little bit of a dicey process. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Keep feeding the world. Don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour, and it's available on both Apple and Android devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. Federal funding through the Specialty Crop Research Initiative is helping to support more in depth pistachio research. Nut crops breeder at UC Davis, Pat Brown, explained the importance of federal support and how it helps open research possibilities. This project is federal dollars, so it's part of National Institute for Food and Agriculture. And so I think what it lets us do is sort of supplement a lot of our ongoing projects with the pistachio board and do a little bit extra. So maybe let us ask some questions that are a little more basic or a little more long term. You know, it might take a little longer for them to come to fruition or maybe a little riskier. And so I think it's sort of most, if not all, of the PIs on this federal SCRI project are also supported by Pistachio Board, but it's good to tap into sort of the federal funds to let us do more. Kroger's announced fresh biodiversity goals for its produce suppliers to meet in the coming years. As a means to enhance sustainability in the fresh produce supply chain and protect pollinators, all fresh produce suppliers to Kroger must adopt integrated pest management practices. Medium to large growers are expected to meet the goal by the end of 2028 and small growers by 2030. The initiative aligns with Kroger's evolving sustainability approach, emphasizing resource conservation and supporting the transition to more sustainable fresh food production. The company collaborated with the Sustainable Food Group to develop the goals and consulted suppliers for feasibility. Suppliers can comply with certifications such as Be Better, Biodynamic, and USDA Organic. Kroger plans to expand its focus on sustainable agriculture, conducting supply chain biodiversity risk assessments, pilot biodiversity metrics, and assessing climate risks within its supply chain. A lawsuit seeking to address rules for the H-2A program has been rejected by a federal judge. A U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia has dismissed a lawsuit challenging the Biden administration's 2022 H-2A final rule. Filed by the National Council of Agricultural Employers, the lawsuit alleged that the Department of Labor unlawfully repealed the prior administration's rule, which had been published just before President Biden's inauguration. The court ruled, however, that the 2021 version never became official as it wasn't available for public inspection. Judge Rudolph Contreras rejected the argument and ruled that the Labor Department had gone through the required notice and comment period under the Administrative Procedure Act in implementing the 2022 rule, which remains in effect. Although acknowledging increased costs for agricultural employers under the new rule, the court concluded that the concerns were adequately considered by the Labor Department. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's inviting applications from state cattle associations or general farm organizations to nominate individuals for the Cattlemen's Beef Promotion and Research Board. 
The deadline for applications is February 23rd, and the criteria for participation includes representing a substantial number of cattle producers, demonstrating stability and permanency, and having a primary purpose of promoting the economic welfare of cattle producers. Importer organizations wishing to participate must consider factors such as members represented, annual import volume, stability, and years of experience. Certified organizations will be notified by the USDA and the Secretary of Agriculture will appoint board members from their nominations. The Cattlemen's Beef Promotion and Research Board is comprised of 92 producers and 7 importers and more information is available on the Cattlemen's Beef Board webpage. Breakout sessions have been announced for the National Farmers Union's 122nd Anniversary Convention that will be taking place next month. The convention will feature policymakers and educators discussing a variety of topics and serves as an opportunity for networking with farmers union members from across the country and farmers union leadership. The event's going to be held March 10th through the 12th at the Scottsdale Plaza Resort in Scottsdale, Arizona. Some of the in-depth breakout sessions at this year's convention will highlight topics including biofuels, the impact of right-to-farm laws, protection of landowner rights, food safety, and managing stress and stressors in agriculture. Registration for the event will remain open through February 28th. More information about the 122nd Anniversary Convention is available at nfu.org convention. West Region sales agronomist for AgroLiquid, Abe Isaac, joins us today to highlight the relationship between micronutrients and the big impact a small amount can have. The thing about it is they're called micronutrients for a reason, because you don't need a lot of them. Uh, when, you, when you look at your tissue sample tests and your soil tests, uh, you're talking at parts per million uh, of zinc of five, six, or seven parts per million in that soil, and you're going, hey, I, I'm sufficient. And in the, in the plant, it's, it's very similar to that, in fact, probably a little bit less. So you don't need a lot. And it's often to say, well, if, if an ounce is good, a pound must be better. And sometimes that's the case, but maybe it does need a pound, but it can't take it all in. So you, you spoon feed that. And that's very important about micronutrients and also not going in with just one micronutrient by itself. A lot of companies, and AgriLiquid is one of them, but there are a lot of companies that have uh, micronutrient packages together that when you put them on uh, and apply them rather than each individual nutrient, uh, it they work much better in synergy. And uh, and you, you can get the equivalency of a pound of zinc out of out of a quarter of a pound of zinc when you mix it with, with uh, manganese and iron and copper and things like that and boron. And uh, you put those all on together in small amounts and make a multiplication. So I say multiplications. You're going through their bloom time. You're going through their uh, in the springtime with the fungicides and everything else. Throw some nutrition in there. You don't need to put a lot, but just continue to hit it so you get that fruit set. You're building cell wall. You're filling cell walls. And uh, you're, you're preparing that plant to defend itself against disease and against pests and, and things of that nature. So uh, you stronger, healthier plant is uh, is better able to defend itself just like ourselves you know we get enough rest we uh, eat the right things exercise a little bit uh yeah we might get still get sick but we may not get as sick as those that are just sitting around eating ho-hos and sitting on the couch and that's the same thing with our with our plants so we we feed them keep them strong and they're better able to defend themselves against what nature has to throw against them i'm brian german for agnet west radio network projects to prevent plant pests 
That's coming up on This Line of Hours. More than 370 projects across U.S. states and territories are funded as part of a USDA program focused on plant pest and disease defense. Samantha Simon of the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service tells us about the USDA program designed to support state efforts. Plant Protection Act Section 7721, it grants USDA the authority to provide funding to strengthen our nation's infrastructure for pest surveillance, detection, identification, and threat mitigation. It also safeguards the nursery production system and respond to plant pest emergencies. The act actually was established through the 2008 Farm Bill. It established the Plant Pest and Disease Management and Disaster Prevention Program and the National Clean Plant Network Funding Program. And so those two programs together, we just call Plant Protection Act Section 7721 or PPA 7721 for short. We are drinking more and more coffee and consuming more and more caffeine. This trend has both positive and negative aspects. Gary Crawford explores both on this edition of Agriculture USA. And now, here's a 1946 movie scene that's set in a coffee shop. Roll that film. I want a cup of coffee. Okay, just a cup of coffee. That will be uh, 20 cents, please. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop the projector. 20 cents for two cups of coffee. It's no wonder U.S. coffee consumption reached its peak in 1946, with the average American consuming that year almost 46 and a half gallons of coffee. But after that, coffee consumption began to turn downward, and 60 years later, 2006, the average American was only drinking about 24 gallons of coffee. But now, coffee's coming back. So perk yourself up while we brew up this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. Everybody likes a great comeback story, and coffee's certainly one of those stories, going from 60 years of declining popularity to today. Re-imaged, remarketed as a prime high-value product, retooled and made fashionable for today's lifestyle, and with every type flavor configuration that anybody could imagine. Oh, it is a new world of coffees out there. Comedian uh, Tim Hawkins says the way that many women deal with coffee these days is different from men. He advises men who want to impress their wives or female friends to do one thing. Like when you go to the drive-thru, learn what they like to drink. It'll blow her mind. It will, because women are, that's a hard drink. They're very complicated. <laughs> yes, it is true. Yes, sometimes I go to the drive through coffee shop and my daughter will ask me to bring her not just a coffee, no. A hot grande caramel macchiato with almond milk. A macchiato, I have to write it down, and even then I'm not sure it's right. Also, for home brewing, that arena has totally changed, too, being taken over by this single cup brewing machine, sales of which are soaring. So all of this is bringing coffee consumption up from a per person yearly average of 24 gallons in 2006 to over 35 gallons last year. And coffee is inspiring songwriters to write songs about it. Here's one from someone who feels he's gotta have his coffee. His blood type is coffee, that's unsavory, but some people do say that coffee's appeal is more than just taste. It also might be due to 137-trimethylxanthine, in other words, caffeine, which brings up the question... Do you really need all that caffeine? But Kansas State University Extension food scientist Karen Blakesley says, like most things, there are pros and cons about coffee. There are some potential benefits 
such as getting some polyphenols and antioxidants that are naturally in coffee. They could possibly protect against some chronic illnesses like type 2 diabetes or heart disease or even some types of cancers. But on the other hand, with coffee... you got to be careful that you don't drink a whole lot of it because of the caffeine content. Too much caffeine can affect a whole range of other things, such as raising your blood pressure or making you jittery or increasing your heart rate. The Dietary Guidelines for Americans says healthy adults can safely take in about 400 milligrams of caffeine a day. So that's about four normal-sized cups of coffee a day. But do you have a heart condition where caffeine could increase your heart rate and that might not be a good thing for you? Also, she says, consider that coffee may not be your sole source of caffeine. There's tea. Eight ounces of tea can have as little as 20 milligrams up to 120. And then... You've got soft drinks. 20-ounce soda can have from 22 to 70 milligrams of caffeine. And then, of course, a relatively new arrival on the scene... Energy drinks. They can range from an 8-ounce can with 80 milligrams to a little 2-ounce drink with 230 milligrams of caffeine in it. Plus, we have currently on the market caffeine-enhanced waters and other things. So Karen Blakesley says if you are curious about your actual caffeine intake. The uh, International Food Information Council has what they call a caffeine calculator. It's on their website at foodinsight.org. It's got places to type in there how much and what type of coffee you drink each day. Even decaf coffee, instant coffee, different types of tea, sodas, energy drinks, and chocolate. Again, that website is foodinsight, one word, dot org. It has all things caffeine. Oh, and oh, one more thing. Karen Blakesley says if you've got to have a lot of caffeine to simply stay awake. Maybe you need more sleep. Could be. Maybe you took a little snooze during this edition of Agriculture USA, huh? Well, this is Wide Awake. Come on, wake up. Wide Awake, Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. With today's featured interview, here's Chuck Zimmerman. At CattleCon. 2024. So I have with me um, Lance Zimmerman with Rabobank. And Lance, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, I'm our senior beef cattle market analyst for Rabo Research, which is a division of Rabobank. Uh, so I work with the bankers, the clients, and the industry at large, um, just helping navigate the complexities of uh, this beef cattle market throughout the entire North American space, but obviously a major focus on the U.S., well, you just published a uh, research report, uh, this one, I think, focusing on rebuilding the you know, beef supply chain. Tell us uh, what are some of the uh, highlights of uh, what you found in this report. Yeah, you know, one of the biggest things that we've been talking about as a U.S. beef industry really since the pandemic are various aspects of rebuilding, right? As the pandemic was approaching, we were already talking about the need to rebuild the processing segment. Uh, today, everything's dominated with how do we rebuild the U.S. cow herd. And so what the research paper dives into is the complexities in the market, that for really the last 25 to 30 years, the U.S. beef industry has embraced demand building. Obviously, being at CattleCon, we're have a lot of discussions this week on demand and the robust growth we've seen since the lows in the late 90s. But as we've done that, we've also seen supplies shrink. 
both in cattle numbers and total per capita beef supplies. What it's resulted is incredibly high prices, record high prices, which we all love. But that also comes with the, the, the consequence of raising the cost of mistakes, right? If you make a mistake in marketing your cattle, if you make a mistake in production, it costs more because the dollars are higher. The dollars at stake across the industry are higher. So this paper really focuses on what are some some things that have caused more volatility, that have made us more vulnerable throughout the supply chain, and then how can we go about fixing some of those challenges? Well, if I understand, uh, this adds volatility and some uncertainty. That's not necessarily a good thing for a producer, but why does that happen and what are kind of the uh, ways that that may change? Yeah, I think one of the things that happens when you're at these higher price levels is we've also just had an evolution in our markets, you know, where 20, 30 years ago, the futures markets were participated by those who were buying and selling cattle and beef. Today, we have a lot more additional market participants from outside agriculture involved in our markets. We also have a lot more outside investment. Uh, Then you think about what's happening with our climate patterns these days, incredibly more volatile. If we think about the drought that we were in through the early 2010s that led to the last herd liquidation, then we were you know, swimming basically in extra water and precipitation through the later parts of the 2010s, only to today be talking about, again, extreme drought through a lot of major areas. So we have market volatility, and we have climate volatility, uh, and then we have all of the, the moving factors that are then affected because of that. We had cow-calf producers who were wildly profitable through the, the mid-2010s, and then they gave it all up over the next five years. We had packing plants just a few years ago were printing money, essentially, compared to today. Now they're struggling to make ends meet. And I, I would say even cattle producers, while they feel like the prices are certainly better, um, fed cattle prices are about 60% higher than where they were in 2020. Feeder cattle prices very similarly. But so were corn costs. So are fuel costs. Interest rates are 130% higher than where they were during the last expansion. And so a lot of the price increase that we've seen over the last 18 to 24 months simply made us whole again for a lot of cattle producers. What role do uh, beef consumers play in this and is likely to happen that might, might help producers then? No, that's a great question. I think this question started coming up even last year at these meetings. How much can we expect the consumer to to help foot the bill? Um, And as we look at that, that's part of the research paper. I go into this idea that consumers during the last uh, cattle cycle highs uh, were willing to work basically 14 minutes for a pound of choice beef and about 10 minutes uh, of labor for a pound of ground beef. And we're, we're well below those today, uh, those, those amounts of labor. In, in other words, what does the beef price look like relative to median household incomes, essentially? If we use those same metrics and we look at where we are today with median household incomes, we look at where we are with beef prices, we have upward mobility. We can actually get choice beef prices up towards nine fifty a pound, where today they're around $8 a pound. We can get ground beef prices up towards $7 a pound, where today they're in the upper fives. Uh, That'll support higher cattle prices, support a higher cutout, all of those things that we need to fuel the next expansion. Um, But we're obviously a long way from being there today. Also involved in this mix is public policy. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about that for beef producers here at this conference. You know, is there any expectation that that might 
become a positive when it comes to helping beef producers? No, that's actually one of the key takeaways in this paper. I focus on, hey, yes, there is this volatility around us. There is this uncertainty. But how do we how do we look for solutions, right? And the three options or the three opportunities I sought out in the paper were vertical coordination, um, increased adoption of technology, and more public policy engagement. And that's very fitting considering where we are this week. But producers generally have a a hesitancy when they hear, hey, I'm the government and I'm here to help. Um, And I get that. But here's the deal. The government's not getting less involved in any of our lives. And so with that being the case, how do we go about making sure that the involvement is favorable, that the involvement helps? And the only way that can happen is if we provide input. And I think whether it's crop insurance, whether it's pasture and range insurance, whether it's livestock risk protection, are all those products perfect as they exist today? No. Are they a net positive for the industry? Absolutely trade and the negotiations that have to happen to get favorable trade agreements for beef, opportunities to um, have more conservation program involvement in our farms and ranches, opportunities to help with this whole sustainability hurdle that we all have to eventually jump. Uh, The government can have a very positive role in all of that, but we got to be engaged. We got to tell them what we want. We got to talk truthfully about the challenges we face and be involved in not only establishing helpful programs, but improving those that exist. Well, before we close, anything else uh, about your report that uh, you've just published that we didn't touch on you might want to mention? I think the biggest thing to to circle around on that concept of vertical coordination, um, we want to preserve the independence of the American cattle producer. That's what's unique uh, about cattle and beef production in the U.S. compared to other commodities, both within the U.S. and even around the globe. But this idea that When we think about the demand growth that we've seen over the last 30 years, a lot of that was coming because we worked together. We worked hand-in-hand with feed yards, cow-calf producers, packers, retailers, restaurants. We've adopted a common mission, and we achieved it with reckless abandon, right? Uh, We need to do the same thing, but now instead of focusing on just demand, focus on how do we build a better supply chain, a more efficient supply chain, and do that by working together. And I think that in the spirit of this meeting, that works really well. Make those relationships, build those business connections with the consumer in mind, and at the end, we can all be better off. All right. Well, thank you very much, Lance, for uh, visiting with me here and telling us about the uh, latest research from Rabobank. And here from Calicon, I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting. You are listening to the AgNet NewsHour. The World Ag Expo is underway in Tulare. And that is where we wrap up our show today. Here's Brian German. All right. And we are out here at the World Ag Expo this year. And uh, who have we got with us this morning? This is Megan Lawson, Marketing Manager for the International Agri Center. And uh, we're here for the second day, uh, Wednesday, which is Valentine's Day, of course. And so what's going to be um, on deck here for today out at World Ag Expo? So Wednesday is a really exciting day for us. We have a brand new event happening at 3 p.m. in our WW Pavilion, which is our livestock pavilion. We are doing our first ever live cattle auction. Um, So if you haven't experienced that or um, it's something that you're interested in, please head over to the WW Pavilion for that. We also have partnered with Fresno State, who's going to be hosting a seminar, which is a pitch event. So kind of a Shark Tank type of event, um, which is really cool. We've had it last year, and it's a really fun thing to go check out. And uh, as part of the livestock, whose idea, what was the onus of this? Where did this come from? That seems like an exciting addition to this year's expo. 
Yeah, so the WW Pavilion was added a few years ago. It's been a great addition, adding that livestock piece to our show, um, having some live animals out there. Last year, we partnered with the Western States Beef Masters Breeders Association, um, and they're the ones putting on that live auction for us. Last year, they did a bunch of demos. Um, so we're really happy to have their partnership and that they've continued to expand with us to bring us that piece this year. And this piece with uh, Fresno State kind of being a, a ag shark type of deal, uh, where did this come from? Who's behind this? And, um, you know, what, what are some of the examples maybe of what's going to be featured there? So, again, a similar situation. We continue to have a strong partnership with Fresno State, which is pretty close to us, so we're happy to continue that partnership. They actually occupy one whole seminar trailer that we have. We have three of them out at the show, um, but one is strictly featuring Fresno State and different seminars they have. So, again, kind of the similar situation. They've just decided to expand and try to get more people out for something exciting and new. And, and they've had a lot of success with that event. And along with that, there is uh, plenty to see here. Lots of uh, demos and, and things like that. And there are several areas where there are specific to come check out some of this equipment at work, right? There is. So we have ride and drives and demonstrations throughout the show. Um, so we have our Toyota ride and drive back. Agco Fent has done a ride and drive. Gus has a demonstration area, um, which is a top 10 winner. So they're really cool to check out. Um, but we also have a couple new ride and drives this year. So we have Can-Am and Boson Motors doing a new ride and drive. Um, and we also have a lot of demonstrations happening in people's spaces. A lot of drones, which is something new for us this year. So um, exhibitors will actually be displaying those drones in action right in their booth space. Um, and going up and putting those on display. So lots of movement out on the grounds this year, and we're really excited to kind of get away from that static show and really show people these products hands-on. And just lastly here, for anyone hearing this that wants to uh, head on down, what's going to be the uh, hours of operations here today, and, um, you know, is that going to be available for people? So today we are open from 9 to 5, so get here early if you can to avoid that traffic or take the park and ride and come out and join us. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halverson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.